0: It's Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why a new discovery about plesiosaurs has gotten everyone talking about the Loch Ness Monster. Plus, the oldest DNA from a horse domesticated in the Americas might have solved a centuries-old mystery. And the scoop on that 13-eyed anthropomorphic oyster mascot from Halifax. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Alright, it's time to address the 45-ton elephant in the room, and by elephant, I mean plesiosaur. New findings about the Mesozoic marine reptile have spurred a flurry of headlines about scientists saying the Loch Ness Monster could be plausible. But it's time to throw some cold Scottish Loch Water on these rumors. So here's what scientists actually discovered. Plesiosaurs, long-necked reptiles with four flippers who were about 10 feet long, have, since our discovery of them 200 years ago, thought to have only lived in salt water. Writing this month in the journal Cretaceous Research, a team led by Georgina Bunker and Nick Longrich from the University of Bath forward the hypothesis that plesiosaurs actually lived in freshwater environments as well. Now, This comes after the discovery of a bevy of plesiosaur fossils were discovered in the Kem Kem beds of southeastern Morocco. Now on the northwestern edge of the Sahara Desert, 100 million years ago, the area was a river system, and home to tons of ancient creatures. creatures whose fossils have been discovered there over the years. As for the plesiosaurs, the sheer number of fossils discovered by this team, vertebrae, teeth, and an arm bone, as well as the nature of the fossils, suggest to the team that the plesiosaurs were not merely occasional visitors to the area, a common enough behavior of other marine animals, but perhaps permanent residents of the freshwater ecosystem. Quoting the University of Bath, the teeth show heavy wear. The scientists say that implies the plesiosaurs were eating the same food chipping their teeth on the armored fish that lived in the river. This hints they spent a lot of time in the river, rather than being occasional visitors. And while marine animals like whales and dolphins wander up rivers, either to feed or because they're lost, the number of plesiosaur fossils in the river suggests that's unlikely. A more likely possibility is that the plesiosaurs were able to tolerate fresh and salt water, like some whales, such as the beluga whale. It's even possible that the plesiosaurs were permanent residents of the river, like modern river dolphins. The plesiosaurs' small size would have let them hunt in shallow rivers, and the fossils show an incredibly rich fish fauna, end quote. Longrich notes that this freshwater hypothesis is a bit controversial. Specimens from over a hundred species of plesiosaur have been discovered over the years, almost all of them from saltwater sources. But he says, quote, Who's to say that because we paleontologists have always called them marine reptiles that they had to live in the sea? Lots of marine lineages invaded freshwater, end quote. And if plesiosaurs evolved to withstand fresh water in modern-day Morocco, who's to say they didn't venture off to other fresh water sources further afoot? And that is where we get the Loch Ness monster connection. Loch Ness is a freshwater lake or loch in the Scottish Highlands. But how did media outlets so quickly jump from a 65-million-year-old plesiosaur community in Morocco to a Holocene myth-focused 2,500 miles north? Well, the University of Bath's newsroom kind of started it with a tongue-in-cheek joke at the end of their statement on the new research, which every other media outlet then latched onto for some end-of-month clickbait returns. But there was at least a moderate explanation for the University of Bath's joke. When the first nearly complete skeleton of a plesiosaur was discovered by fossil hunter Mary Anning in 1823, spurring the subsequent naming and awareness of the creatures among the public, the strangeness of the reptile took hold in people's imaginations. Many 19th century depictions of folkloric and mythological creatures took inspiration from the plesiosaur, including, especially, the Loch Ness Monster, which in many depictions was fashioned after the plesiosaur's unique traits. As Longrich describes in a blog post featuring an original sketch of the creature's skeleton by Anning, quote, Plesiosaurus was a bizarre creature, not like anything alive today. So the image of the Loch Ness Monster as being vaguely plesiosaurian is fairly common in the public consciousness. And more than that, some cryptozoologists believe that sightings of the Loch Ness Monster and other sea monsters over the years are actually plesiosaurs that survived into modern times. Now, scientists have always rejected that proposal, and as the University of Bath states in the very next sentence after their joke about it being possible that the Loch Ness monster was a plesiosaur because we now believe plesiosaurs could have survived in freshwater like Loch Ness, quote, but the fossil record also suggests that the last plesiosaurs finally died out at the same time as the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, end quote. That tiny detail won't stop people who truly want to believe, however. And from the Scotsman, quote, Reports of a strange creature living in Loch Ness date back to ancient times. Notably, a flippered beast is depicted in Pictish carvings, with the first written account of the animal appearing in a biography of St. Columba from 565 AD. The modern legend of Loch Ness dates from April 1933, when a new road along the shore offered the first clear views of the loch from the northern side. A local couple driving home spotted an enormous animal rolling and plunging on the surface, with their account appearing in the Inverness Courier, with the word monster used in the copy. The Nessie phenomenon was born. Serious research into the Loch Ness monster still continues, with researchers from New Zealand last year concluding that Nessie may have have been a giant eel, based on the DNA of the lock. Meanwhile, more than 1,140 sightings have been recorded by the official Loch Ness Sightings Register, including four this year. End quote. Still, that carving from 565 common era is still tens of millions of years after plesiosaurs would have gone extinct. So how do we account for a legend passed down from before the dawn of humanity, not to mention the sighting in 1933 and the ones this year? Those ain't no plesiosaurs, fresh water or no. As IFL Science put it, quote, plesiosaurs may indeed have played in an ancient lock, but there is no evidence whatsoever they survived the asteroid-induced end-Cretaceous extinction. Even if they had, survivors would almost certainly have favored equatorial environments. Loch Ness's bitter cold and low primary productivity could hardly be further from the warm, rich waters of the Moroccan River plesiosaurs enjoyed in the Cretaceous end quote. So it's been fun getting to see a bunch of headlines about Nessie this week, and always cool to learn something new about ancient creatures. But no, sorry, this latest finding was not evidence of the Loch Ness Monster's modern existence. Well, keeping on the new scientific data for old folklore beats, an accidental discovery by the Florida Museum of Natural History may have finally solved the mystery of the wild horses of Assateague Island. Assateague Island is a 37-mile-long barrier island that's located partially in Maryland and partially in Virginia, where most of the land falls under the Shinkoteague National Wildlife Refuge. Wild horses alternately called Assateague Horses and Chincoteague Ponies, have roamed on the island for centuries, but no one is quite sure where they came from. Quoting the Florida Museum of Natural History, according to the National Park Service, which manages the northern half of Assateague, the likeliest explanation is that the horses were brought over in the 1600s by English colonists from the mainland in an attempt to evade livestock taxes and fencing laws. Others believe the feral herds descended from horses that survived the shipwreck of a Spanish galleon and swam to shore, a theory popularized in the 1947 children's novel Misty of Chincoteague. The book was later adapted to film, helping spread the shipwreck legend to an even wider audience. Until now, there's been little evidence to support either theory. Proponents of the shipwreck theory claim it would be unlikely that English colonists would lose track of valuable livestock, while those in favor of an English origin of the herds point to the lack of sunken vessels nearby and the omission of feral horses in historical records of the region. End quote. That's the legend put a pin in that. And let's now go to Nicholas Del Sol, a postdoctoral researcher at the Florida Museum of Natural History who was studying how cattle were domesticated in the Americas by analyzing the DNA of teeth specimens in the museum. The specimens came from Puerto Real, a once bustling port town on the island of Hispaniola in the 16th century. After pressure from piracy and illegal trade, residents were evacuated from the town, and it was later destroyed by Spanish officials. 400 years later, medical missionary William Hodges rediscovered the forgotten town, leading to a decade-long excavation led by the Florida Museum of Natural History. That excavation resulted in a ton of specimens from cows. While both cows and horses were present in the town, Del Sol describes it as, quote, horses were reserved for individuals of high status, and owning one was a sign of prestige. There are full-page descriptions of horses in the documents that chronicle the arrival of Cortez in Mexico, demonstrating how important they were to the Spanish, end quote. Of the 127,000 animal specimens from Puerto Real at the museum, only eight belong to horses, according to National Geographic. The rest are largely from cows. The museum explains further, quote, "'Cows were used as a source of meat and leather, "'and their bones were regularly discarded "'in communal waste piles called middens. "'But one community's trash is an archaeologist's treasure, "'as the refuse from the middens "'often confers the clearest glimpse "'into what people ate and how they lived.'" End quote. So for his investigation into the domestication of cattle, these recovered teeth specimens from Puerto Real were perfect. But as Del Sol conducted DNA analysis, he noticed one specimen wasn't like the others, at all. In fact, it turned out to not be from a cow, but from a horse. The accidental miscategorization of the molar means Del Sol has now sequenced the oldest ever DNA of a domesticated horse from the Americas. Quoting National Geographic, Although native to North America, the wild horse species that gave rise to domestic horses, Equus ferris, was not present on the continent for most of the past 10,000 years after disappearing at the close of the last ice age. However, when European explorers began colonizing the Caribbean in the late 15th century, they unwittingly reintroduced domestic horses. Once they reached the mainland, horses quickly spread across the continent where their ancestors had once run wild. But most horses didn't end up in a place as inhospitable as Chincoteague and Assateague. With limited food options, the ponies subsist solely on marsh grasses, a salty diet that forces them to guzzle twice as much water as the average horse, giving them a perpetually bloated appearance. The briny diet also keeps them generally small in stature. And this hostile environment is also why people are so intrigued how ponies got there. End quote. When Del Sol went to compare the horse molar's DNA to that of modern horses, he got another shock. While the Puerto Real specimen did match that of horses still living on the Iberian Peninsula, from which the Spanish brought their horses 500 years ago, this specimen's particular next-of-kin matched that of the wild horses on Assateague Island which means it was the Spanish, not the English, who brought their horses to Assateague Island so many centuries ago. And by total accident, we finally have evidence for one of the theories about the mystery of those wild horses. As Del Sol and his team state in their study published yesterday in the journal PLOS One, quote, Beyond folk stories, affinities between early Caribbean horse breeds and the Chincoteague ponies may reflect Spanish efforts to colonize the Atlantic coast of North America. These Colonizing activities persisted throughout the 16th century, reaching as far as Chesapeake Bay. Most of these efforts originated on Hispaniola, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Colonization, trading, and raiding among European interests in the Caribbean and along the Atlantic coast into the 1800s offered many opportunities for Spanish horses to reach the mid-Atlantic coast. By revealing these genetic affinities, this study contributes a new perspective on colonization's impact on domestication, colonial economies, and- and its environmental consequences." So many accidents over multiple centuries finally coming together for a pretty cool conclusion. Some mascots just go harder than others. Exhibit A Gritty. He was born out of the kind of ironic chaos that I think best befits a mascot and has therefore become beloved over the years for being utterly stupid and never taking himself too seriously. Exhibit B. Pearl, the many-eyed mollusk mascot of the Halifax Oyster Festival. Conceived of in two dimensions for merchandise in 2017, the first year of the Halifax Oyster Festival, and born into this world in all her papier-mâché glory the subsequent year, Pearl has been quietly delighting and horrifying local attendees to the festival for years, but only this month graced the rest of the world with her presence in the form of a viral tweet. Now, in some ways, Pearl is a hyper-realistic depiction of an oyster, with a blend of grays and reds on her ridgy surface. In other ways, she ascends reality with at least 13 eyes, a set of full humanoid lips, and pairs of human arms and legs protruding from her oystery head body. Festival attendee Amy Langdon posted a photo of Pearl giving a double thumbs up this past weekend with the caption, This is the mascot for the Halifax Oyster Festival and I'm absolutely terrified of it. End quote. The tweet has since garnered over 27,000 retweets and comparisons to everything from Doctor Who and the Addams Family to Edward Munch's The Scream. Within days, BuzzFeed News was on the scene, divining Pearl the Oyster's lineage and bagging an interview with the mysterious Mollusk. It turns out that Pearl is the brainchild of festival organizer Christine Oreskovich, the publisher of Halifax's alt-weekly newspaper The Coast, which also runs the festival. Quoting BuzzFeed News, Pearl became so popular with gawkers that a companion for her named Earl debuted the following year. But Oreskovich noted firmly that Earl is not Pearl's husband. They're not like hetero people, like hetero oysters. Earl looks a lot like Pearl, which actually makes sense once you learn that oysters can switch genders easily, except his lips are less voluptuous, and he sports a long mustache that looks like a barnacle, to make it easier for him to pierce your skin and eat your flesh, end quote. Oreskovich says that while Pearl has been beloved at the festival for many years, it's great to see even more people enjoying her, telling BuzzFeed News, We have loved this thing for so long, and no one's really appreciated how cool and weird and messed up it is until now. We're five years ahead of ourselves. End quote. BuzzFeed also managed an email interview with Pearl, which is absolutely worth reading in full, but here are a few takeaways. When asked about her relationship with Earl, Quote, Earl and I are on a break. He did me dirty on a vacay to Meat Cove, Cape Breton, and I'm waiting for cooler waters. End quote. And on her gender, sexual orientation and species wide sex hungry stereotype, Pearl replied, quote, if sex hungry means single-handedly repopulating the Atlantic Ocean with nearly six billion babies each and every year, then yes, I'm sex hungry. But I'm pro choice. Gender is fluid. I'm by valve. End quote. And for all those people online terrified of Pearl and her over-a-dozen staring eyes, don't worry, she says, she doesn't eat humans. Quote, I'm a phytoplanktarian, end quote. Well, that's going to be it for me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.